When you think of Texas, you think of cowboys. It was about the desert, in a way. It was about, you know, cattle. And I think that that's the kind of predominant image that people have of the place, when in fact, the southern part of Texas is incredibly important to the formation of the state and to the culture of the state today. Texas was a slave society. Historian Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed is a Texas native. In her book, On Juneteenth, she questions the dominant caricatures and events that we associate with Texas, challenging readers to ask which ones are missing and why. While it is short and easy to read, On Juneteenth left me acutely aware of the many illusions I have about the Lone Star State. Why more Western than Deep South? And this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we bring you conversations and stories that explore how beliefs shape how we see and engage in our world. The story of Juneteenth is not one I learned when I was in high school back in the 80s. And I know I'm not alone. The story of federal troops riding into Galveston, Texas, to read the order declaring that enslaved people must be freed. And I know I am not alone in learning that story much, much later. Last year, the Gallup organization found that 40% of Americans knew nothing or very little about the significance of the day. But that's starting to change. In recent years, the national conversation about the history of slavery, race, and the structures that followed have more asking questions and searching for answers. That might explain why for the last three weeks, as we approach the second anniversary of the federal holiday, On Juneteenth is back on the New York Times bestseller list. Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed is a historian who challenges readers to interrogate their ideas about the myths we may hold about our culture and our country. She's a historian who is comfortable having conversations about uncomfortable things. And as the first African-American recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for History, she has become one of the most authoritative voices on race and history in America. This week, we begin revisiting our conversation from shortly after her book release in 2021, in which I ask her to talk about the departure that is happening in On Juneteenth, one in which she introduces two very different narratives, history and events, along with her own lived experience. This is not typically what I do. I'm more detached in my other writings of history. I'm outside of the story in a way. 
I might talk about myself in the introduction, but once I get into the story, to the history, I, I move away from it as much as I can. But I also thought that this would be a way of reaching a larger audience to talk not just to adults, but I really want this to be the kind of book that teenagers, young people could pick up and perhaps identify with a narrator who is being open about herself and her, her life and how, you know, to some degree, we're all a part of history. We could all tell the histories of our times by talking about things that happened in our lives. And so I wanted it to be accessible to lots of people. And I know memoir, I have to confess, has not been, you know, one of my favorite genres. <laughs> uh, but I, yet here we are. Yeah, but here we are. Exactly. And I, I try to deal with some of the problems I have with the form by talking about myself as little as possible. I mean, I mentioned my mother and father's names yeah. and a handful of other people. But I thought that the more I went into like a family genealogy and family tree and talking to everybody, then it would become more memoir than history. And I wanted a particular balance. And I thought that by being present, but not too present, uh, would help me maintain that, that balance between mm. memoir and actual history. As a historian, do you feel that there's a pressure to remove the potential subjectivity that a person brings when they identify with the subject that they're teaching or talking about? Well, yeah, I think we can't be totally objective. We, we all know you can't have total objectivity, but you should not be sub substituting your desires and your wishes um, in, and placing them on the people you're writing about, mm -hmm. on the circumstances you're writing about. Yeah, so th that's definitely there. When you're writing a memoir and you, you, the parts that are about you, these are my impressions, you know, and, and they can't be wrong in that sense. I mean, I can be wrong about factual things, but when I'm talking about my feelings, you know, how my experiences, how they affected me, there's, there's some freedom in that, too, that you don't have to endnote that. As a professor, as a woman, as an African-American, do you find history presented as objective that, in fact, is more subjective or selective in the narratives that are included? Well, yes, uh, I, I have seen that. That's what my first book really is about. Mm. Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and American Controversy. It was going through and seeing the way historians who were writing about the story of Jefferson and Hemings had preferences about the answer to that question, whether or not they had children. And it led them to ignore evidence, to accept evidence that was less than supportable coming into the matter when you're dealing with a topic that was very touchy for people and it meant a lot to folks. I mean, that's why history is an art. It's not a science. There's no magic formula. And sometimes you, you hit the right balance and sometimes you tip over, but it's the, it's the attempt and the good faith attempt that I think that people, people respond to. When you encounter someone who says, explain Texas to me, <laughs> what do you say? Well, what I think it's really important for people to understand is that Texas is part of the Southwest. And the emphasis 
has been on the Western part of it. When you think of Texas, you think of cowboys. I did a language study program in France when I was in college. I lived with a family and they knew I was from Texas and they had an understanding about what Texas was about. It was about the desert in a way. It was about, you know, cattle. And I think that that's the kind of predominant image that people have of the place when in fact, the Southern part of Texas is incredibly important to the formation of the state and to the culture of the state today. Texas was a slave society. Stephen F. Austin, from the very beginning, understood that slavery was going to be critical to the enterprise because the people he was bringing over from Georgia, Alabama, and the other states came with the expectation that their property rights in enslaved people would be protected. And Austin says, if people came to Texas without the institution of slavery, they could expect to be poor for a very long time because, you know, the, it was backbreaking work in felling trees and turning East Texas into a part of the cotton empire, which is what they wanted to do. So most people, as a matter of fact, have lived in the eastern part of Texas, which is the Old South. It's very much like the Old South. And so I would tell people that a lot of the things that are coming out of Texas, these are racial questions that grow out of the racial hierarchy that was created by the institution of slavery. And that continued even after slavery was ended, even after Juneteenth, 1865, when slavery uh, ended in Texas, the question of Black citizenship and Black voting was controversial among many whites and has been something that, has, that they've been fighting uh, since that time period. And it's interesting that here we are dealing with the same kind of issues. Once you understand that this is not about cowboys, and oil men, as exemplified in the movie Giant, which I'm sure many people have heard of if they haven't seen. It tells a narrative about the, in the beginning, Texas was a place of the cattle rancher and cattlemen and cowboys. And then uh, they were challenged by the oil men, the people who struck oil. And then the two of them come together when oil is discovered on the land of the cattle ranchers. So they become one society, but they leave out the plantation owner. A land of infinite variety and violent contrasts. A land where today's ranch hand can become tomorrow's multimillionaire. They leave out the kind of people who came over with Stephen F. Austin and created Texas as part of a cotton empire, growing cotton and sugar cane and other crops. My ancestors on both sides of my family were brought from other parts of the Deep South into Texas. My mother's family on one side, I can trace back to the 1820s in Texas, before Texas is a republic, and certainly before it becomes a state. And my father's side, at least the 1860s. And their ancestors came from these other deep Southern places uh, to you know, recreate the slave society there. 
it's really important for people to understand that because you understand the racial mores and the political life of the place. You describe in the book the events that led up to Juneteenth, but you actually spend a little bit more time, at least in my read, on the way that the society and the culture used extrajudicial means and other mechanisms to keep that hierarchy in place. And you describe the role that people play who aren't necessarily named, like judges and lawyers and um, and school teachers. There are different roles that people play in reinforcing and supporting the social mores that are an extension of that racial hierarchy. When you look at the events around Juneteenth celebration, do you feel like they told a full story of what Juneteenth means and and what happens even after you have a legal proclamation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Black Texans understand this very well because we have been celebrating this holiday since 1866. The first anniversary after 1865 you know, kicked off these celebrations that have gone on and on. And they, they're typically, when you have them in public places, there are speeches that are given, there's music and so forth. There's an educational component to it. And I think Black Texans understand that even though there was great joy at hearing the news that enslaved people would no longer be in slavery, would never be treated as property in the way they were before. They knew they were in for a struggle. (laughs) They were amidst a group of people who were still very hostile to them and were hostile to the idea of incorporating them into the society on an equal basis. I've used the phrase hope amid hostility that just because chattel slavery ended, it did not end the racial hierarchy. The culture of the place, the culture of, of education, of voting, of social life, all of those kinds of things were still geared towards maintaining this hierarchy. And it's been a fight ever since then. So it was, it's a hopeful story in a lots of ways, but I'm hoping that people will, as the years go on, have more of an opportunity to reflect on the ways in which it was still going to be an amazing struggle, even after the end of slavery. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. When we come back from the break, my conversation with Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed continues. She's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and historian. If you missed any portion of the conversation, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. And you can also take the show on the go. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, my conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Dr. Annette Gordon-Reed. Her latest book on Juneteenth is back on the New York Times bestseller list and just in time for the federal holiday, which will be observed this year on June 20th. Now, before the break, she talked about the struggles that began after the federal order declaring that the Civil War was over and that enslaved people were to be freed. Now we turn our attention to the present, how teaching and just talking about the events like Juneteenth have become so controversial. Let's get back to the conversation. There are growing efforts to update social studies and U.S. history books to more accurately reflect the events that surrounded chattel slavery, Reconstruction, and the era of Jim and Jane Crow in the United States. And that's been accompanied by a growing number of attacks, specifically on social studies and U.S. history teachers. How do you respond? Well, you know, I think there's a lot there's a lot going on with this. There's a concern that when you talk about what actually happened, that young people will feel bad about it. <laughs> and, you know, they should. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to read stories about people who had their families taken from them, you know, mothers separated from children and husbands separated from wives. It was a, it was a tragic situation, but it happened. And you have to talk about what happened in the past. History is not just the fun things that happened or the good things that happened. And that has to be put forth. So I think that there's a concern about a notion that this will make people unpatriotic. The feelings of white children are, you know, a paramount here saying that, you know, we don't want them to feel bad about things that their great great grandparents may have done. 
Well, you know, I, I don't know what to say about that because those things happen <laughs> and you have to talk about them. And it's pretty much saying as well that the feelings of black children don't matter. Mm. So that if you're a black child and you know that your ancestors were enslaved, you're not supposed to talk about that because you will make your white classmates feel bad. Um, that's that doesn't work. <laughs> you know, that doesn't that doesn't make sense. If, if things happen, you have to talk about them, talk about them in an age appropriate way. I mean, as we do everything the way we present matters to children, but they have to be discussed. There are people who don't believe or suggest that the situation that African-Americans are in, the sort of inequality that exists, that this is all our own making. And if you talk about the past and you talk about the ways in which society organized to stop Blacks from advancing, it supports the idea that, you know, we've been up against it, that we've been fighting against. We, we're not, it's not a level playing field. That abstract notion that there are social constructions is something a lot of people are struggling to understand. And if that is, in fact, the case, what does it mean about how we go forward? Yeah, well, I mean, individual character, but I think it's a bit more than that with African-American people. It's, a, it's an indictment of African-American culture, that it is something wrong with us as a people that, that explains why we haven't done things. You know, people build up Greenwood, a, a nice uh, town mm. uh, with doctors and lawyers. Mm -hmm. And then when somebody allegedly does something wrong and, and there's no real evidence that he does anything wrong, people use that as an excuse to burn it down. Mm -hmm. you know, and you're, like you're referring to the Tulsa race. Tulsa, yeah, the Tulsa mm -hmm. thing. And things like that have happened, you know, across the South. Not, Tulsa was just one uh, example of that kind of thing. Yes, but you're right. There's this notion that it's about individual merit or the merit of a race of people and that African-Americans are an inferior race. And what has happened here is that through no fault of whites, whites have not done anything to blacks. It's just their own uh, laziness that's caused the problem. But if you talk about history and you talk about segregation, you talk about lynching, all of those kinds of things, you understand that there was a concerted effort, in fact, to keep African-American people down. Where does religion come into the story? Well, um, I suppose it comes into the story among African-Americans because many Black people, most Black people have used religion as a coping mechanism for them during slavery and after slavery as a way of maintaining a sense of faith that things would get better. So I think people in the, in the black community, many of them have been buoyed by their religious beliefs uh, from the very, very beginning. And certainly religious figures have been more traditionally the leaders in African-American communities. You describe Texas as a promised land to Stephen Austin using almost biblical language. And I'm struck by how the language of liberation and freedom was understood by two different communities in very different ways. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, there was a black church and there was a white church. And in the white church, it was Eventually, uh, it wasn't always this way, but certainly the pro-slavery ideology in the South was very much tied to 
uh, religion. I, I remember going through a diary of one of Thomas Jefferson's grandsons who's going through the Bible and finding references to slavery as a way of justifying the existence of, uh, of the institution of slavery. Now, that's something Jefferson would never, never have done uh, in that generation of people. But certainly by the, the time that we're talking about with Juneteenth, these people are the heirs of the Second Great Awakening. And in the South, that tied very much into pro-slavery ideology. And of course, in the North, they went the opposite way. White abolitionists saw in Christianity uh, a call for abolition, the liberation of African-American people. So a lot of it seems to be people using religion as, as it happens to suit their, their particular, maybe earthly <laughs> desires, uh, uh, answers to things, uh, using religion to, to buttress their views about stuff. So all of these people are claiming from the same Bible um, claiming answers about the the nature of or the the rightness or wrongness of slavery and coming to different conclusions about it. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard. She's an award-winning author of several books, including The Hemings of Monticello, An American Family, for which she earned a Pulitzer Prize in History and the National Book Award. She is also the past president of the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. She is the current president of the Ames Foundation and, over her career, has received many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in the Humanities, a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Humanities Medal, and the National Book Award. Coming up after the break... Christian nationalists, by a large margin, said the Second Amendment is the most important amendment to the United States Constitution. Not the which, First which, Amendment. Not the First Not the First Amendment, which also guarantees them freedom of speech and freedom of religion. That's Ryan Burge, a political science professor. We're going to be talking about the numbers, attitudes about guns by religious groups, and more. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan, and we'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. Mm-hmm. 